It's September 20th, 1972. The fall semester at Columbia is just starting back up, and Dr. Wolfgang Friedman, a professor in the law school, is walking up Amsterdam Avenue at the end of his workday. He's heading toward the 125th Street Metro North Station, where he commutes home to his family in Westchester. As he crosses 122nd Street, he's approached by three men. They demand his wallet. The professor resists, and one of the guys pulls out a knife. The exact details of what happened next aren't clear, but the outcome is unquestionable. Dr. Friedman was stabbed to death. Over the months that followed, details of the incident began to emerge. Three kids from Harlem were arrested as suspects. Steve Robinson, who was 22, his 17-year-old brother David, and David's friend, Daniel Mingus, who was also 17. The Columbia community was thrown into a state of total shock. They wondered, if this could happen to a professor during his daily commute, then how safe was everyone else? If you were around Columbia or Barnard this past year, you've probably already connected Friedman's story to the tragedy that struck our community last December, the murder of Tessa Majors. If you were on campus, you probably remember where you were when you heard the news. I know I do. I was at Barnard working on a final project in Milstein when the news rolled in. At first, it was a mass text message that someone had been stabbed. Then we heard that the person hadn't survived. Soon, people were whispering that it was a Barnard student. There was a brief, terrifying period in which I knew that a Barnard student was dead, but didn't know whether it was a close friend, an unfamiliar name, or someone in between. My heart sank when I heard someone say the name Tessa. She and I had talked on one of my very first nights at Columbia. She struck up a conversation with me, of all people, in a crowded room. Throughout the semester, she was someone I had waved at when we walked past each other or struck up a conversation with in the line at Hewitt. She was someone I wasn't close to, but that I really hoped I might get the chance to know better. Like so many of us at Columbia and Barnard, I was absolutely crushed by her loss. The details of Tessa's death started to surface over the days following her murder. She was walking in Morningside Park around sunset and was mugged. She resisted the attack, and one of the kids pulled a knife and used it. The perpetrators were three young kids from Harlem. Not college-age kids, but middle school-age kids. The executive board of Columbia's Women of Color Pre-Law Society wrote an op-ed for Spectator after Tessa's death about their concerns regarding the trial of the young suspects. Amari Gator, a junior at Columbia and the vice president of outreach for the society, spoke with me about her concerns after she heard the tragic news back in December. You know, so the minute I heard that, I was like, oof, that could have been me. Like, I don't know what's going on yet, but that could have been me. Um, but then on the other hand, then I started getting information about, like, the potential perpetrators of the case, learning that they might um, be, like, 13, 11-year-olds. And then I started thinking, like, oh, no. Like, what? Like, I already feel really bad for those children as well, because they're just children, and I know that they are not, like, malicious, evil children. And then as things kept going, I, like... There were assumptions being thrown around, like race wasn't even mentioned yet, but I saw people online being like, these like black thugs are in the park, and I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Or like Bill De Mayor Bill de Blasio had tweeted like a day or some amounts of time after the case happened, like saying that he was immediately going to be increasing police presence, and then like quick clicking on that tweet and reading under it lots of anti-black, like disgusting things about Harlem, about black people, about black men. 
Responses from members of the Columbia community, West Harlem residents, and New Yorkers in general were as intense as they were varied. Fingers began pointing at the university, its public safety officers, and the NYPD. The mayor called for more police to be deployed in the park and the surrounding area, and the university pledged to increase patrols on the edges of campus. Facebook comments blamed the incident on the end of stop and frisk. Barnard faculty started getting racist robocalls, and a man was arrested for threatening to kill one of the suspects in a Reddit post. Beneath the public fear-mongering, though, there was a real concern among Columbia and Barnard students. Everyone agreed that Tessa's death was a tragedy, and that efforts should be made so it would never happen again. But what was the university, or the city, or community members actually supposed to do? Some voices called for more police presence in the park and surrounding area. Others advocated for investment in community resources and restorative justice initiatives. And lots of people weren't quite ready for those conversations, and they held off on engaging with the exhausting but unavoidable political ramifications of a murder like this. Columbia Public Safety and the NYPD announced that they would increase their presence in the park and the neighborhood after Tessa's death. Columbia's private security forces were enhanced on their side of the park with additional foot patrols and squad cars, and also by deploying officers 24 hours a day to every guard booth, including the one just steps from where Tessa died. NYPD followed suit on the Harlem side. The 26th Precinct pledged to have a 24-hour foot post and squad car constantly patrolling the park, a horse-mounted officer for the evening hours, and additional Parks Department officers. They also committed to buying new security cameras and installing bright, permanent lighting. For some, this beefed-up security may have come as a relief, but others couldn't separate the reforms from the legacy of over-policing in Harlem. The history of policing in the neighborhood is, in many ways, a history of violence, racism, and corruption in the name of safety. The relationship between the NYPD and many members of the community is also far from amicable. When I started looking into the history of crime and policing in Morningside Heights, I came across the 1972 murder of Dr. Wolfgang Friedman. I almost couldn't believe the similarities between his murder and Tessa's. Both happened on an unassuming walk near campus, both cases were muggings that turned into lethal stabbings, and both deaths resulted in a trial of three black boys from Harlem for the crime. These similarities are more than just interesting coincidences, though. In the 70s, the university made a promise that it wouldn't solve safety problems with increasing police. But after the dust settled, that's exactly what happened in Morningside Heights. Losing any community member is absolutely horrifying. But losing Wolfgang Friedman in 1972 hit especially hard. As a law professor, he was deeply involved in Columbia's community and built an extensive network of colleagues, students, and friends. He had a laundry list of professional accomplishments. He founded the Columbia Journal of Transnational Law, he was a member of the National Academy of Arts and Sciences, and he held a seat on the University Senate. He was active in the political and social turmoil that gripped Columbia's campus during his tenure. He advocated for equal opportunity employment for the construction of the Dodge Fitness Center, and pushed for a teach-in in response to the U.S. invasion of Cambodia. He lived a remarkable life before even stepping foot on Columbia's campus. He was born and raised in Berlin and spent his early career as a judge. The story goes that during one trial, he stood up to a squad of Nazi stormtroopers and ordered them out of his courtroom. He was dismissed from the court and fled to England and then Canada before ultimately ending up at Columbia. Michael Rosenthal was just starting out as an associate dean of Columbia College in the September of 1972. He happened to be in Dean Peter Pouncey's office on the evening of September 20th when the phone rang. It was after 
5 o'clock because the office was empty and I was working late. And so I was there alone in the office and, and the phone rang. Maybe it was 5.30 or 6. And it was President McGill, who obviously had, had called to speak to Peter, Peter Pouncey. Um, but Peter wasn't there. I had picked up. And he was clearly rattled and, and he said, you know, Wolfgang Friedman has been murdered uh, on, on Amsterdam Avenue. With such a high-profile murder, the administration was under pressure to respond. Two days after the incident, the president announced that he would initiate a car service between Columbia and Penn Station and prioritize the hunt for the suspects. But he did not call for increased police presence in the neighborhood. The circumstances are very good for me now to write to the mayor, to the commissioner of police, calling for better police protection of the campus. I do not think that it would be prudent for me to do that. This response was a major deviation from how Columbia and the city would typically respond to crime. A New York Times editorial called Morningside Heights a, quote, sidewalk jungle, and said that Friedman's murder was a, quote, far from an isolated incident. The New York Daily News suggested that crime in the area should be addressed with, quote, the old reliable electric chair. Even within Columbia's faculty, economics professor Harold Barger argued that security concerns, quote, could slowly or rapidly kill the university and deter potential students and faculty. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the NYPD's typical response to violence and crime in neighborhoods was to deploy more officers where it considered high crime areas, along with initiating some community programming efforts like police-backed sports leagues. In the 1950s, Fears of street crime prompted the city to heavily saturate the streets with police officers. In a program called Operation 25, the department deployed all 250 graduating officers from the police academy to Harlem's 25th precinct in 1954. They expanded the program into Morningside Heights the following year. In the 1960s, Columbia and other Morningside Heights institutions began taking matters of public safety into their own hands. They funded a private security force called the Morningside Community Patrol, with 22 officers who worked directly with the NYPD, patrolling the streets around Columbia with radios and billy clubs. According to the head of the Morningside Community Patrol, this did lead to a decline in the rate of muggings in the years before Friedman's death. But that was forgotten in the aftermath of the murder. With the crime fresh in their minds, people still thought they were in more danger than ever. The president's decision to not increase police presence shouldn't have come as a total surprise, though. McGill was the president who took over after the 1968 student uprising at Columbia. The former president, Grayson Kirk, had been ousted in protest of the university's proposed gym construction in Morningside Park, its complicity in the Vietnam War, and a slew of other grievances. McGill made the cover of Time magazine when he was appointed to university president. He was supposed to bring order and tradition back to Columbia, save the university's reputation, and build back up the endowment. Another consequence of the 1968 uprising was an increasingly fraught relationship between many Columbia students and police forces. The city's police had forcibly removed the occupiers of university buildings, often beating protesters with flashlights before sending them to jails downtown. And the university's cooperation with the NYPD in quelling the uprising was intensely criticized by members of the movement. This, coupled with the long history of police brutality and corruption in Harlem, would have made any proposal to heighten police presidents in the area highly controversial. The Spectator editorial board at the time articulated some students' anxieties about the police response to Friedman's murder in a staff editorial published in the weeks after the incident. They wrote that, quote, neither the gadgetry of Columbia's security force, including powerful walkie-talkies and rapid transportation, 
nor an increase in manpower will end the crime problem on campus. Instead, the university must determine the problems plaguing its security arrangements and preventing the force from adequately protecting the Columbia campus." End quote. President McGill's response didn't seem to square with what I knew about his desire for order as the university's president. But Michael Rosenthal explained how this decision fit into McGill's role. He did play the role of a tough guy, but he was also, I think, you know, he was also shrewd and he was also trying to, he was trying to, to change the, the view of Columbia and to, to come down with police and, and, and all sorts of defensive measures, I think would have perhaps given the wrong, was, would have been the wrong image to project. There was one major action the university took out in the aftermath of Friedman's death. They commissioned an independent study by the Rand Corporation on the numerous disconnected security forces in Morningside Heights. As the community began to move on in the months that followed, the study quietly reached conclusions about how the university and other stakeholders should handle security in the neighborhood. One outcome was the formation of the Morningside Area Alliance, a coalition of the neighborhood's private security forces. In effect, it was an initiative to increase police presence in Morningside Heights. The Alliance brought the manpower of what was now called the Morningside Community Patrol to a total of 25 officers. They weren't police in the legal sense, but they worked closely with the NYPD and patrolled the neighborhood in a similar way. The police department also instituted a special high-visibility patrol, which, according to a Spectator article, quote, maintained a large presence in certain trouble spots in the area. In 1974, Spectator published a retrospective article examining the impact of the Friedman murder on public safety and policing. The actual security outcomes were far different from McGill's rhetoric that the university wouldn't leverage the situation to heighten police presence. The opposite actually happened. The article writes that, quote, over the past few years, a number of steps have been taken to alleviate these fears, and these steps could probably come under the general heading of presence. Barely a year after the murder, the very measures that President McGill had pledged to avoid had become the reality in Morningside Heights. McGill said that things would be different this time, that Columbia wouldn't contribute to the saturation of police in Upper Manhattan that played such a major role in the police brutality and violence in Harlem. But in the end, things weren't different. The university and the city addressed public safety by deploying more police, just as they had for decades, while the social and economic issues behind the crimes residents worried about remain largely ignored. Lots of people would argue that heightening policing after Friedman's murder was the right move. The same could be said about Columbia's present responsibility in the aftermath of Tessa Major's death. Maybe Morningside Park and the neighborhoods around it need security offers who can step in so what happened to Tessa will never happen to anyone again. But even if that were true, it doesn't change the fact that there are real and significant consequences when it comes to adding officers in Harlem and Morningside Heights. Monica Dula, a criminal defense attorney, member of Community Board 9 and West Harlem resident, spoke to this issue when I asked her what public safety in her neighborhood would look like. Black and Latino people are not comfortable with all those cops being in that park. We, we want the security, but sometimes we have the concerns, particularly when it comes to police dealing with young African-American and Latino men. It's a, it's a challenge for us. You know, we want to be safe too, but... On the other hand, we know that those interactions, even some very minor interactions, can go wrong and quickly mushroom. Everyone wants their neighborhood to be safe. 
and getting there requires the community to ask itself what protective measures are effective and just, and what can be changed to prevent crimes from happening in the first place. The rates of murder and assault in New York City are very different today than in the 1970s. There is remarkably less murder and assault in Upper Manhattan nowadays compared to previous decades. But this year, those of us who may have forgotten were reminded that violence is still present in our neighborhood, and that the conditions that bring people to commit muggings, stabbings, or other acts of violence still exist. In the immediate aftermath of Tessa's passing, Columbia and the city didn't hesitate to increase police patrols in and around the park. But the conditions that made that choice so precarious in 1972 still exist today. And people like Monica Dula have concerns that more police in Morningside Park might not mean more safety for everyone in Harlem. No matter how you feel about the impact of police in Harlem, though, it remains the case that police patrols alone will not address the root causes of violent crime that led to this tragedy. There are people in Harlem dedicated to addressing those concerns. Street Corner Resources, an anti-violence community organization in Harlem, has pushed for restorative justice models of public safety enforcement rather than increased policing and long-existing carceral methods. At a community forum on public safety after Major's murder, Manhattan Borough President Gail Brewer stressed the need for social workers to be present in every New York City school in order to provide support and intervention for young people who could be at risk of perpetuating violence. These proposals aim to tackle the difficult, unclear part of public safety. They attempt to provide community-level resources to prevent the root causes of violence instead of reacting to an incident after it's too late. Now, there's a global pandemic and public safety conversations are totally transformed. But when students eventually return to Columbia and the West Harlem community emerges from isolation and back out onto its sidewalks, policing will continue to have a massive impact on our daily lives. We'll still feel the empty space in our community where Tessa Majors should be. In some ways, we can only hope that the tragedy of her loss will never happen again. But we can also grow from this incident, from the murder of Dr. Wolfgang Friedman, and from the many people that Harlem communities have lost from violence who don't get the attention of Columbia students and faculty, we can make sure that we really have done all we can to ensure that this tragedy will be the very last of its kind. This episode of The Ear was reported by me, Cole Cahill. It was produced by Amy Rupert and edited by Teresa Lawler and Eve Washington. This episode featured the voice acting of Adam Dornblum. The music in this episode is provided by Chad Crouch via soundofpicture.org. Thanks for listening.